Morning. All right, there we go. I was like, oh, it's quiet. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh, Pastor Jay, you got some work to do. (laughs) All right, good morning. Uh, We've got a few announcements, so we will walk through that. The first one, life groups are going to start up again. So we've got our winter quarter starting up, um, and sign-ups are happening until March. I think it's the end of March. And so if you go to your online communication card and you can click the box there, or you can text group to our Brookview number. Yep, 425-406-3660, and you can text group there. If you are interested or curious to learn more about life groups, they're pretty awesome. We've got women's groups, men's groups, combination couple groups. We've got all kinds of groups for us to get involved with. And so, just saying. Just saying, putting it out there. So mark it on your card. If anything, get more information about it. The next one, we have more opportunities to partner with Vision House and the Nourishing Network. And so you'll see um, here we've got a, a, a trunk load of goodies, but it's been a blessing to partner with both of the organizations. And so there are signups that are available. And if you're curious or interested, not even curious, we're just going to call it out. If you want to help, hmm, there's a lot of opportunities this month. And the next week, we're going to have a pickup on January 18th. And so if you text that same number, 425-406-3660, and you text Vision or Cedar Way, so Vision House, um, there's a list for um, needs there, like toiletries, toilet tissue, cleaning items. And there's actually a need for men's clothing um, new or lightly used, and so you'll get more information about that. Cedarway, um, there's uh, carrots, potatoes, lots of good stuff on there for the children to be able to have food. Um, and, you know, we think about it, we're still in a challenging situation where families may only have that meal when they come to school, and so this is an extension of how we can help them to make sure that they have the nutrients they need at home. So if you are looking forward to supporting that, please, please, please text Vision or Cedarway to that number. And if you want to do drop-off during the middle of the week, there are two bins that are typically here with lids on the side of the building. I'm, I'm pointing to those on the camera as well. Still on the oh north side, north side of the building. I'm like directionally, yeah, north. Um, so... Please, please, please put some goodies there or in the uh, foyer of the church if you you come in. And if you still have some gift cards over the holidays that you're not using, slip those in there too. You can slip them under the door. Um, I know people may or may not use them, so we would be able to bless some people with that. And last but not least, we talked about the communication card. So please go ahead and go online. Uh, we're digital now. Mm-hmm. Um, make sure you go to www.brookviewchurch.com and there is a link there to click your online communication card. And if you are needing um, prayer requests or you'd like to leave a wonderful comment of how the messages are going um, or just how you have seen us um, be light here in the community, the feedback is wonderful. Um, And if you have other comments, well, that's different. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. So please, please take a a look at that. And then there are other requests. You know, if you're curious about um, getting connected closer with the Lord, uh, there's a box for that, too. And that are all the announcements for today.
It's so packed in here, I think we should do the wave. <laughs> hey, all you sicky heads at home, you got to like uh, send your energy because we need it. For those of you that are not sicky heads, it's good to have you here. And Jojo filling in for sicky head Trevor with, uh, he, you know, we got, we got, there is, this is epidemic is real. We got, people are wiped out. So um, if you're here, God bless your health. Uh, if you're at home, God bless you for watching. Um, all right, we're going to dive into this thing. Joe, you did a great job with announcements. She filled in last minute. Yeah, it's supposed to be Trevor this morning, and um, we lost Trevor at the last minute. So, you guys, as you know, life is complex, isn't it? And, and the human brain was hardwired by God, like at a neurobiological level, to synthesize vast amounts of data and simplify it all down to a focal point. You realize how extraordinary you are? Like, it's amazing. And we constantly have to think about what to pay attention to, what to value, what to notice, what to respond to, how to respond. And human nature is, is complex. It's full of, of paradox. There's, there's ambiguity, right? And there's tension and there's uncertainty. And we can be pulled in so many different directions at the same time. So to start off 2022, we're thinking about our need for simplicity. Because without a strategy to simplify, life can get really out of control. Without a strategy to simplify, there, it feels like there's never enough time, there's never enough money, there's never enough energy. And, and we, can, we can start to feel like we're just falling farther and farther and farther behind. In addition, when, when we try to have it all and we, we try to do it all, life can sort of descend into something very trivial, very superficial. Um, there was a Christian mystic named Thomas Kelly from the last century that I, I think expressed what many of us have felt. He said, he said, we feel honestly the pull of many obligations and we try to fulfill them all. And we are unhappy, uneasy, strained, oppressed, and fearful we shall be shallow. We have hints that there is a way of life vastly richer and deeper than all this hurried existence. A life of unhurried serenity and peace and power, if only we could slip over into that center. We have seen and known some people who seem to have found this deep center of living where the fretful calls of life are integrated, where no as well as yes can be said with confidence. And notice Kelly's language of the center, like with a capital C. The idea that to not feel this superficial flurry of activity, to, to not feel like lost and, and overwhelmed and like we're falling behind, we need to find a deep center of, of living. We need to find what he calls the center. And right now, there's an idea kind of floating around in the world of psychology this is becoming more and more accepted, commonplace. For a long time, the thinking was that we all have like a personality. Like you can identify your personality type on a test, like on the Enneagram. How many of you have done the Enneagram? Yep, it's your cult members. Um, <laughs> So maybe on the Enneagram, you're a type two or five or eight or whatever, or like on the Myers-Briggs, maybe you are an INFP, right? You're probably not IM. You can look that up later. 
I remember the, the first personality test that I took. The first one I ever remember taking. It only had uh, four types. And they all had, and this was helpful, they all had a corresponding animal. <laughs> so I guess this was kind of like a personality test for really simple people. Um, but let me run through these because it's kind of fun. Let me run through these. See if, if you can identify most with one particular animal. So the lion, okay? First personality type would be the lion. And it's characterized by descriptions like takes charge, determined, assertive, firm, enterprising, enjoys challenges, bold, purposeful, decision maker, goal driven. That's the lion. Okay, then you have the otter, which is like this. They're energetic, and they're fun-loving, and they enjoy change, and they mix with people easily, and they're optimistic, and they're, they're motivators, and, and um, they avoid details, <laughs> and they're very verbal, and they like variety, and they're group-oriented, and they're promoters. Can anyone say Trevor Gray? And then you have, you have the golden retriever. And if this is you, you're, you're loyal and even keel and non-demanding and tolerant, a good listener, you're nurturing, you avoid conflict, you enjoy routine, you dislike a lot of change, you're sympathetic, thoughtful, patient, and you want really deep relationships with a few people. And finally, we have the beaver. Now, these people are characterized by being deliberate, orderly, practical, factual, analytical, controlled, reserved. They tend to be predictable, scheduled, persistent, precise, detailed. Okay. I'm curious who in here identifies with what. So uh, we're going to just do a little, in, you know, like you didn't take the test, but you know. <laughs> you know. Who in here would say that they're a lion? Anne, really? That, you know, if you were really a lion, you would have went like that. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, so we got two lions in here. That's not as common. All right. How many of you would say you're, you're an otter? You know, say that's kind of where you're at. Get them up there. We got a, yeah, okay, we got a few. Yeah, people jumping for fun. Uh, golden Retriever. Any, how many of you? Oh, my goodness, you guys. No wonder we get along so well. Wow. Okay, there, uh, if you're online, there's a lot of Golden Retrievers here. Okay, and how about the beaver? The, yeah, kind of. Okay, yeah, a few of you, good. Uh, okay, at the risk of getting weird, which of these four do you think I am? Golden Retriever. <laughs> do we have a second? Uh, what, uh, go, golden Retriever? Yeah, I'm a Golden Retriever. I got a hint of beaver in there, but you know, so I'm just not very fun at, at all, really. <laughs> No wonder there's so many golden retrievers. If you like my preaching, like it's like we would just attract all the golden retrievers in one little puppy herd in here. Okay, second question. Those of you that know me and know, know our family well, can you guess what I'm going to ask? 
What, who, what, yeah, what is, okay, what is Jen? Oh, baby. You guys know, when, in the first couple of years of a marriage, when you have a lion and a golden retrievers, here's what happens. The, the lions eat the golden retrievers. <laughs> Just get devoured. Uh, but I, I learned to, to, uh, to stand up for myself, so this been, it's been good. Look, okay, look, these kind of tests, they can be useful and helpful for sure. Um, the prob- here's the problem. The problem is they, they do not and cannot capture the complexity of the human condition. Like these days, many psychologists are using, they're, they're suggesting a completely different paradigm. Um, to not think of yourself so much as a personality, but to think of yourself more as like a family of sub-personalities. Now, this, that might sound like weird and creepy to some of you. You're like, whoa, wait a minute. You, you feel like I'm describing Gollum from Lord of the Rings. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, master likes us. You know, like, well, it feels like schizo or something. So let me explain. Uh, Christian psychologist David Benner describes it like this. He says, what we call I is really a family of many part selves. For example, uh, those of you that have experience with the Enneagram, um, under that paradigm, there are how many basic personality types? Nine. Okay, but so here's the thing to keep in mind. The experts would, would tell you that you actually have all nine in you, right? It's just that for most people, one is typically more prominent. But they would also argue that you have a number that you maybe go to in when it's high stress. And it might be very different than the number that you kind of function in in a time of low stress. So in reality, all nine are present in you in, like to some degree. And the challenge is that our, our sub-personalities all have their own agenda. So the experience of the soul is often kind of like a Darwinian survival of the fittest battleground between our sub-personalities. Uh, spiritual sage Rich, Richard Foster describes this inner tug of war that we often feel. See if you can relate to this. He says, within all of us is a whole conglomerate of selves. And each of these selves are rugged individualists. Each one screams to protect his or her vested interests. If a decision is made to spend a relaxed evening listening to Chopin, which I know many of you, that's what you want to do with a relaxed evening. Is listen, Dave, good. You're, I knew you were cultured. <laughs> okay. So you want to, <laughs> want to spend a, a, an evening listening to music of your choice. Um, the, the business self and the civic self rise up and protest at the loss of precious time. The energetic self paces back and forth, impatient and frustrated. The religious self reminds us of the lost opportunities for study or evangelistic contact. No wonder we overcommit our schedules and live lives of frantic faithfulness. Do you feel that tug of war inside yourself? I do. I mean, and so this battle can, it just, of subpersonalities, I, sometimes I feel like it's just raging in me. It kind of reminds me of the, the Pixar movie, Inside Out. Oh, yeah. How, how many of you seen that? Oh, man, you guys. I thought, it was, I thought it was brilliant. And then I talked to little kids, and they're like, it was lame. I'm like, no, it was brilliant. 
Because it's all about, by, by, again, psychology major, right? Like, it's all about what's going on inside a person. Like, in the control center, there's, li- like, literally a cockpit in the center of the human personality, and there's these five emotions that are personified. And the movie is about the felt experience of a person, right? This teenage girl dealing with all the emotions of life and trying to integrate all of this complexity, and you guys, I, I just think it is, it's provocative and insightful depiction of what goes on in the inner person. So if you don't think it's awesome, you need awesome lessons. <laughs> now, I should take that back. Um, I know really good people that didn't like it. So if that's you and you didn't like it, I just want you to know, Jesus still loves you. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm digressing. All right, here's the point. There, there is a lot of tension in the command center. There's this tension between our priorities and our values and decisions we need to make and what to do with limited resources, right? With time and money and energy and attention and, and the way that we integrate all of those desires and pressures, that is really the job of what the Bible calls the soul. The, the, and like soul formation, A lot of people in our culture tend to think of the soul as sort of this like wispy, invisible part of you that floats up to heaven when you die. Um, But that, that, like the cartoon bubble kind of thing. But that view of the soul really comes more from the Greek Plato and more from like Looney Tunes cartoons than it really does the Bible. In the Bible, the word soul simply refers to your entire person. From your heart to your mind to your central nervous system and through your body, it's, it, 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 it's, a, it's a way of cap, capturing the whole of who you are. It's not this invisible, wispy thing that's inside of you. It's you. And this is key because if we misunderstand what the soul is, we, we also misunderstand then how to take care of it. When Jesus says, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their soul? What does that mean? Like even further, and this is important, what what does it mean for Jesus to save your soul? I mean, that's like a really big concept. That's a kind of a key idea in scripture, right? But what the heck does that mean? Well, the word uh, save in the New Testament is the Greek word soteria. And it's the same word that in many translations, including NIV, is translated as heal. So when you're reading through the gospels, and you read that Jesus saved somebody, and then a little while later you read that Jesus healed somebody, you're actually reading the exact same Greek word. So get this, the English word salvation comes from the Latin word salve, as in an ointment that you put on for the healing of a wound. And that is the central idea of salvation. It's about the healing and the wholeness of your whole person. It isn't primarily about this wispy cartoon part of you that floats up to heaven when you die. It's about the healing and the health of your soul right now and on into eternity. The healing and restoration of your whole person. This is what Jesus is interested in. Now, in a secular paradigm, psychologists attempt to kind of describe this experience. But of course, they're not going to talk about salvation. They're going to use other kinds of language. And the common word that gets used a lot these days, they call it integration. And I actually like that language a lot. The idea is that when we're not integrated, 
they would argue, like around some, some sort of center, that we feel torn and we feel tense and we feel tired all the time. But if we're integrated, then we come to a focal point and we begin to be able to manage reality and manage life and feel at peace with the way things are. The, the question is, what do we integrate around? And this is where the, the secular framework has no answers, right? You know, the, for the, for the, in the secular world, it's about self-actualization, which might come through a self-help book or listening to endless podcasts or the focus and relaxation that maybe comes through yoga. And, um, and those, those can be helpful activities and practices. I'm not knocking them. But Jesus said that there's something much more powerful, something that leads to real wholeness and healing. And the Christian philosopher... Soren Kierkegaard summarized it as what he called purity of heart. Kierkegaard was one of the most brilliant minds of his generation. And he said the main problem in the human condition is that we will or we desire too many things. And in many cases, our desires contradict each other. And as a result, we disintegrate, which has tragic consequences for our soul. This is the idea that's reflected in David's cry to God in Psalm 86. He pleads with God for what he calls a, a, an undivided heart. Check it out. This is uh, Psalm 86, 11. David says, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Lord, give me an undivided heart. What would that be like? It would be so good. Here's how it's uh, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in the message translation. It says, Train me, God, to walk straight. Then I'll follow your true path. Put me together, one heart and mind, then undivided, I'll worship in joyful fear. Now, I love this prayer because so often I find that my heart is divided. I mean, I, I want God, right? Like, I, I want God. Like, genuinely, honestly, I, I want God. But I also want more money. And I want a lot of stuff, nice stuff. And and I want status, and I want luxury, and I want quick, easy pleasure. And my desires often tear my soul apart, and they wreak havoc on my peace. I feel fragmented and fractured, and the thing is, I suspect that I'm not alone. And so this series is, is about simplicity, a, a life and a soul that is not being torn in a thousand different directions. I mean, what if we, could, we, we really could experience the integration of our soul? What if we could, we could live from a place of, of quiet confidence? What if we could operate from a place of peace where we're able to make decisions about where we say yes and where we say no and then just feel really good about it? This series is about moving toward a place of simplicity. And so last week we started this and we looked at several definitions of Christian simplicity. And I just want to run through these real quick. Uh, just restate these. Richard Foster describes it this way. He says, it's an inward reality of single-hearted focus upon God and his kingdom, which results in an outward lifestyle of modesty, openness, unpretentiousness, and which disciplines our hunger for status, glamour, and luxury. Joshua Becker, the intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of anything that distracts us from them. How simple is that? John Mark Comer, limiting the number of our possessions, expenses, activities, 
and social obligations to a level where we are free to live joyfully in the kingdom with Jesus. And I could just sort of summarize it this way. It's, it's letting God guide me to the most meaningful things in life by limiting things that distract and prevent me from participating in those things. Now, many of us are aware of our need to simplify. I, my, my guess is that most of you walked in here and went, yeah, I need to simplify. Like, I got too much going on. It's just crazy. I mean, you talk to the average person right now, and you're like, hey, how you doing? And they're like, it's crazy. I'm busy. It's crazy busy. I'm busy crazy. It's crazy busy. I mean, talk to some, like, this is what people say. Like, you can just, you can predict it. This is what's going to, we, we're aware that we need to simplify. We're aware that we would benefit from more margin. We would benefit from more financial margin, more margin in our schedule, more margin with our emotional energy. But here's the problem with trying to find margin. It's not enough to simplify by creating margin. We have to simplify around something. As the saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum. So if we create space in our budget or in our schedule or in our energy quotient, something or someone will very quickly rush in and fill that void. It could be our career, it could be our children, it could be, uh, it could be a, a neurosis that we have, like it's just sort of weird psychotic thing. Like I think of the famous uh, photo that we had, the, the one of Steve Jobs. Have you guys, some of you seen this photo before? Famous photo. This is Steve Jobs listening to music in his living room in the Bay Area in 1982. And Jobs was the world's most famous, like, minimalist for many years. Like, when you think about it, a, a multi-billionaire who would get up in the morning and wear the exact same outfit every single day. His minimalism was designed to give his mind and his heart and his body more space and full attention to pursue his vision of, of life. So here he is, he's sitting in his, in his living room on a mat, and the space is, is empty except for a lamp and his stereo. Dave, I'm sure he's listening to Chopin. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, so, but notice how simple, but also how void this really is. There's no mess in this room, no mess, no clutter, right? There's also no family. There's no people. There's no children running around spilling Cheerios and milk from their sippy cup. There's no relationships. You know, he refused for years to admit that he even had a daughter. He maintained that denial despite a positive paternity test. And when she went to college, the multi-billionaire initially refused to help her with any of her tuition or college expenses whatsoever. Is that crazy? His life consisted of one broken relationship after another. Walter Isaacson, his biographer, in his commentary on this iconic picture, claims that the reason the living room was empty wasn't because Jobs was a minimalist or, or he was at peace. It was because he was an obsessive, compulsive perfectionist with a torn soul who could not decide on the perfect furniture layout. For Jobs... His center was, was not God or relationships or love. It was, in his own words, to change the world through technology or to make a dent in the universe. Would you guys say he did that? Yeah. 
I mean, Steve Jobs made a massive mark on our world through technology. But in Jesus' language, it's hard to read the story of his life and not wonder at times, like, man, in some ways, there is a guy who, who you might say lost his soul. And all that to say, what you center your heart on will define who you do or do not become for better or for worse. So on that note, we are ready to dive into the words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So let's, let's look at what Jesus had to say about what it is that we are to center on. Um, and it comes, this comes at the end of his in-depth teaching, uh, his teachings in Luke on money. So if you were with us last week, uh, we left off in the same chapter, Luke 12, verse 21, and today we're picking it up in verse 22. But for context, okay, if you were with us last week, I'll give you a reminder if you weren't, here's kind of where we were. In Luke 12, here's the scene. Verse, it says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And then Jesus tells a story about a a very rich man, right, who has a windfall, and he decides to take all of his money and just spend it on himself, living lavishly and, and, and with more pleasure and more comfort. And he wastes the opportunity to do something more meaningful. Okay, right out of that story is where we're picking up. Jesus continues with this. says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus is like riffing on his earlier line. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. There's, there's a lot more to life than accruing things or living in excess. So here he says, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. Life is, is more than food and the body more than clothes. Don't worry about that stuff. Don't give your best attentions to that stuff. His point is that we tend, what we tend is that we tend to give our attention to whatever is, is ultimate for us. Be that success or making better technologies or a new house or nicer clothes or deepening relationships or serving people or growing in our character or experiencing more of God. But what you give your attention to reflects what's ultimate to you. And it determines who you are becoming. So Jesus says, be wise about what you make ultimate. Goes on, consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Like they have no 401k. Yet God feeds them. And and how much more valuable, and how much more valuable you are than the birds. It's like, look, you, 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 you matter to God more than you know. And he's always working to bring about your deepest flourishing. Your father knows what you need. He knows more than you do what you need. So don't try to control everything. Because in the end, he's got you and he loves you. He says, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Again, you're not in control. You can't extend your life by even a single hour. You're not in control. So why do you work feverishly to to try to manage everything to get it exactly how you want? 
it can and it eventually will be taken from you. And in this global pandemic, have we not all felt that to some degree? Jesus is saying, look, if your happiness and peace depend upon circumstances being just right, you will always be unhappy and peace will always elude you. He goes on, consider how the wildflowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? He's saying, think about how much your father loves you. If, you. if you trust him, he will provide all that you truly need. So why give all of your attention and anxiety to stuff that in the end is really trivial? Stuff that you can't ultimately control anyway. He says, and do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink, and do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows that you need them. Look, God knows that you need food, and he knows that you need clothes. You, you need them. That's legit. But don't set your heart on them. Don't make them ultimate. This is what people who don't know God do. But you can live differently because you know the Father. He can, it, Verse 31, but seek his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. Learn to experience God's presence and love in all that you do. Make that ultimate and you will find that the rest just sort of takes care of itself. Do not be afraid, little flock. And I love the, the tenderness, like the pastoral heart of Jesus in that. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You, you're, you're, you're under the care of a great shepherd, a father who doesn't lack resources. He is a God of abundance and he is opening his abundance to you. So don't claw and cling and step on people and clamor to get more. No, more is coming. He will meet your deepest needs so you can live generously like with open hands. Jesus continues, sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. God is trying to give you something more than extravagance. He's trying to give you meaning and love and relationships, a place to belong. He's trying to give you total healing for your soul. So be very careful about ignoring that and focusing instead on something else. Be extremely thoughtful about what you make ultimate. And here's the iconic closing line. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me just ask you to think about your life right now. What is it that is truly ultimate for you these days? What is it that captures most of your attention? Like in moments where you could just sort of think about anything, what does your mind continuously drift towards? What do you spend your time worrying about or strategizing toward? That stuff is an indication of your true treasure. And maybe you find you, you treasure security. You know, it's really about everyone and everything being safe. Maybe you treasure affluence. You just you honestly dream of acquiring more. Or maybe it's pleasure. 
And it's just all about the next experience or success. And you're just scheming constantly about ways to climb and ascend. What do your thoughts tend to fixate on these days? And what does that say to you about what your, what your treasure actually is? To what degree are you seeking first the kingdom? In fact, wh- what would that even look like? I mean, wh- what the heck does that mean? Seek first the kingdom. It's like a spiritual cliche that just like, I mean, how, how would that affect our yes and our no? It's like, hey man, I'm making a Spar- Starbucks run. Can we grab you anything? I'm like, no, you know, coffee isn't my treasure. Because <laughs> I'm seeking first the kingdom. Well, I mean, what are we talking about here? What, what are we saying no to? What, what does this even mean? What, what does it mean to seek first the kingdom? Does it mean that we do nothing else but like read scripture and pray and we just eat crackers and drink water enough to like be, have this emaciated, like what are we talking about? Does it mean that we never enjoy material things? Does, does it mean that we only ever think about God all the time? I mean, think about that. Does, does that. does that vision inspire you? You're like, yes, I can't wait to enter into that life. Uh, so let me just say, the way that we think about spiritual life, it matters. Um, for a lot of us, we, we're already struggling to find time for all the things. Like, we, we know that there are lots of things that we should be doing, and we just can't find the time and energy to do it all. Like, we should spend quality time with our spouse. How's that going for everybody? We, we, we should spend really quality time with our friends. We should have meaningful conversations with our kids where we, where we connect on a heart level. We should, we should invest our money wisely. Are you investing your money the most wisely? You know, we, we, we should eat, eat healthier. We should take care of our house. We should pay our bills on time. We should get our car serviced regularly. We should get our furnace serviced. We should get our dishwasher. We should get our fridge. You know it's insane, the things that you're supposed to be getting serviced. <laughs> we should spend quality time with our extended family. We should have hobbies that replenish our soul. We should explore better career opportunities and, and, and get promoted. We should get our kids involved in three sports each year-round. And make sure that they're at the same time all getting really good grades and they have very healthy friendships and they're involved in the right social circles at school but not the wrong ones. And we should be there for our neighbors who are in crisis. We should get to the gym more often so we can get jacked. Yeah. We should take better care of the yard. Get the weeds out of there. And all the moss. My gosh. It's never-ending battle. You ever look? It's just like, what is all the moss doing to my roof right now? Oh, wait, Jesus said, don't worry. Look at the moss. We should should plan romantic getaways with our spouse, right? We should keep things fresh. We should make them spicy, unpredictable. We should floss every day, if not after every meal. We should read our Bible, and we should go to church, and we should pray Does anyone feel tired and depressed? (laughs) Holy smokes, man. I mean, how how do you do it all? You ever feel like you're falling short? I think many of us live in that place pretty much constantly. 
So here's the danger of this message, right? We, we read the words of Jesus, and if we hear Jesus saying, hey, do better spiritually, we often feel like, ah, I know, I really should do more. Or, you know, that's like, maybe that the less polite response is, forget you, Jesus, do you know about my life? Right? But part of the reason that this feels unreasonable and overwhelming, and part of the reason that it feels impossible to maintain is how we, how we categorize spiritual life, how we think of it. Most of us think of our time and energy in the way that we just, this is American thinking. This is, we think of it like it's a pie chart, right? Like our job takes a, a slice of the pie. For some of you, it takes a massive slice of the pie. For some of you, it's 15 hours a week. For some of you, it's 40. For some of you, it's 60, 70, 80 hours a week. It, that's, a, that's a big slice. Time with our spouse takes another slice, right? Then there's a recreation slice and, and an exercise slice. And can we be honest, an Instagram slice. There's a slice for preparing meals, shopping for them, cooking them, eating them, for house care, for, for sleep. So anything that takes time and energy constitutes a new slice. And we never seem to have a big enough pie for all the slices. We can't fit them. And so maybe we, we try to carve out like a bigger slice for spiritual life. And we find that it's just an ongoing struggle. And then we feel bad about it. And then we envision that God is disappointed or that he's angry. And, and we, we just sort of sense Jesus saying to us, you need to do better. Like you spent two hours on Instagram yesterday. Do you know what, what would happen if you prayed for two hours? Right? Or, or how can you even call yourself a Christian? How can you call yourself a Christ follower when you spend that much time on social media and you're not in the word and you're not praying? And what's your treasure? Don't you even care about me? So here's what I want us to see. Jesus is not maneuvering for a bigger slice in the pie of your life. If we see spirituality as a slice of the pie, we totally misunderstand. The idea of life in the kingdom with Jesus is not about pie. It's not primarily about more spiritual activities. It may involve some of that. It's not primarily about more prayer and more scripture and more church and on and on and on. It's about life with Jesus in everything that we do. Jesus isn't clamoring for a bigger slice of your pie. He wants the whole pie. He wants to join you in everything that you do. That's kingdom life. So instead of thinking of spiritual life as a slice of the pie, instead of thinking of life as a pie at all, uh, we've talked about this before. I shared this a couple years ago. Maybe think of, of life as more like a bike wheel, right? With many, many, many spokes. And in the center of that bike wheel is, is a hub, and every single one of those spokes is supposed to go into that hub. And if you remove that hub, and then you try to like, take that hub out of there and then go for a bike ride, that's not going to go well, right? It will fall apart in a hurry. That hub is what keeps every spoke in place, and it's what keeps the whole wheel sturdy. For the Christ follower, that hub is the triune God. It is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And every aspect of life is like another spoke that we then connect to the hub. 
Our career is firmly rooted in the hub. It's firmly rooted in God. Our marriage, our parenting, our recreation, our friendships, our finances, the way that we use and see our home. Kingdom life is about all of the spokes going into the hub. And here's the thing. Jesus is not asking you to do more than is possible. He's just not. And then looking at you with disdain as you fail every single day. If, if that's your vision of Jesus, you will likely struggle to ever feel close to him. Because you, you don't have to do it all. You can't. It's, it's impossible. But Jesus wants to, to, with you, to partner with you to arrange the spokes of your life so that they work together. And more importantly, he wants each spoke centered in him. Like you think about like 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. He says, so, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul, Paul was not advocating that we give Jesus a bigger slice of the pie. Paul was advocating more like bike wheel thinking. Our whole life deeply rooted and connected to the center, to the hub. You guys, the way that we think about spiritual life matters. Now, I have to confess, when I made an outline for this message, I had two more fantastic, significant points. And they were really, really good. In fact, they would change your life. (laughs) And they would make you say, that was an amazing sermon. Jason is so deep and so wise. That message today changed my life forevermore. But because this series is about simplicity, (laughs) I have decided to save those points for another day. Because there's a spiritual concept. The mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. (laughs) So, I just want to close really by camping on, on this idea. Have you been thinking of spiritual life as a slice of the pie? or more as, as a bike wheel? And what is that way of thinking doing to your soul? How, how is it affecting how you see Jesus? How is it affecting how you think Jesus sees you? There's an incredible passage in Revelation chapter 3. I just, I mean, it's just, it's so moving to me. And it's very famous. And it's one that has been a, a foundational Uh, just a foundational concept in in my life in various seasons. But here it is. Jesus says this. This is Revelation 3.20. Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You guys, this is the offer of a lifetime to let Jesus into my whole life. Like he's patient. He's loving, he's kind, and he wants to be invited in. And the more I invite him into all the different arenas of my life, the more the spokes of my life truly connect to the hub. It's in those, the seasons that that's happening most, those are like the greatest times of of peace and of joy in my life. But please don't hear me saying, please don't hear me saying, So, you need to give your whole life to Jesus in every way, and until you do that, you are an utter failure as a Christian. The truth is, I have have never done this completely. 
And I've never really done it in an ongoing, sustained way. But this is always the goal. And this is where I find life, and I know it. I know it. I, I discover it again and again. And the more it becomes a reality, the more my life is integrated, the more it's centered, the more peace and joy becomes a, a, a reality for me. So I, I just want to close by asking you to think. What is one arena of your life where you really need to invite Jesus in? What's one spoke that recently has not been connected to the hub for you? An arena of life where you're kind of doing, you're just kind of doing life on, on your own. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's the way you do recreation. Maybe it's an area of, of great stress. Maybe it has to do with your, your health or, or relationship or someone that you, you love. I, I, I just want you to hear Jesus say to you today, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What, what would it look like for you to hear his voice and invite him in? What would it look like for you to not just keep doing that thing on your own? What would it look like for Jesus to come in and eat with you, like have a meal with you? What if the presence of Jesus were to bring peace and joy beyond anything that you've ever known in that arena of your life? What might, be, what might happen if you begin to consistently invite him in? Father in heaven, I thank you that you are so patient and so kind and so good to, to me in spite of all of my flaws and weaknesses and arenas that, that need obvious growth. But I, I want my life more and more and more to have you guiding me and directing me and, and to feel your presence and, and to feel your, your, your purposes in, in everything that I'm doing. I, I want to be integrated. I want to be able to make really wise decisions about what I say yes to and what I say no to because I can't do it all. I can't even floss daily. But God, you're, you're inviting me into a life with you that is that is filled with your presence. And I pray that you, you teach me to enter into that. I pray that for all of us, you would help us to align the different arenas of our life with you and your presence and your guiding, your, your, your guiding voice more and more and more. God, would you, would you bring peace and would you bring life to us in all of the places of our life where right now we're, we're trying to do this thing without you. Amen.